a lovely old-fashioned idea here is that we use old Parliament House for this purpose, right? That it becomes effectively, it becomes effectively a third chamber of Australian federal of, of Australian federal democracy, and that every five years you assemble a group of let's say 150 Australians who gather for two weeks and sit in the in the House of Representatives chamber and hear arguments, and at the end of at the end of that two weeks, they elect a new president for a five-year term. That, that strikes me as a wonderful compromise. You have uh, 150 people. They select, not by election, but that's another story, but they select uh, uh, without a sort of any competition between them. They select who among those people are most impressed by the people who have been there for that two weeks into some kind of executive, and that executive then has a kind of watching brief. Uh, so something like that could play the role of a, a pre, of a president. I'm very hello and welcome to paying attention with me, Nicholas Gruen. Uh, um, Peyton Bowman is uh, away for a couple of weeks, and uh, I invited a friend of mine, Sam Rogaveen, to uh, come and talk about uh, the way he sees politics. I was a referee, uh, a, a um, uh, a praising referee, it's not quite the right word, but anyway, a positive referee of this book, uh, Our Very Own Brexit, which was about the state of Australian politics. And I thought we would talk about uh, the state of politics generally, and also the Australian election. Uh, and as we've determined in previous discussions, uh, what's going on in America is a kind of test case for some of the things that Sam thinks about democracy and how we're going. And uh, I'll be putting in my or of my own view, which is uh, similar, but rather darker <laughs> than uh, Sam's. Uh, so uh, with that introduction and my trusty glass of green tea, I will uh, uh, ask Sam from the Lowy Institute to uh, Give us uh, to, to outline the way he's thinking about democracy, what its challenges are, uh, what's going wrong, uh, and what we uh, and 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 we'll leave it at that at the moment. But we'll try and work on uh, over the conversation on how we can get some of those things right. Sam, mm. thanks, Nick, and good day to the listeners and the viewers. Well. Uh, where to begin? So I think that little book that you held up there, Our Very Own Brexit, I, I can't claim to have uh, predicted the 2022 election result, but I think I can claim to have foreshadowed it. And uh, at the core of the argument in that little book is that uh, what most critics are calling a decline of democracy in the West is in fact the decline of major political parties uh, and that the frictions created by the decline of major parties are being, I think, wrongly seen as uh, a broader crisis of democracy. So as I think we'll get into later, Nick, I'm a little less pessimistic about democracy than you are. And hopefully what we'll also get into is that the state of modern America actually challenges my relative optimism uh, a little bit. But let me just outline the uh, the major elements of the case. So uh, I, I argue in that little book that 
the centre-right and centre-left parties that dominate all uh, Western democracies are in decline, are in systematic decline. And there, there really aren't any exceptions that I know of in the West of where uh, those major parties are not losing both vote share and uh, losing membership. Um, so now, first of all, let, let's look briefly at why that's the case. Uh, and I think basically the, the, the reason is that our economies and our societies have changed. Um, Australia is a good test case here of the argument and, and the simplest way to understand what I think is a, you know, a broad Western phenomenon is just to look at the Australian case. So the Australian Labor Party was founded on uh, basically being the political wing of the union movement, the political arm of the union movement. And of course, over the course of, uh, of the uh, second half of the last century and continuing now to this day, the union movement ceased to be a significant uh, uh, presence in the Australian economy and in, in uh, the Australian workforce. So, uh, therefore, the, the political basis on which the Labor Party was formed uh, started to erode and, and is falling away. Uh, you would think that would be good news for the Liberal Party, which exists to oppose Labor, but I argue in the book that, in fact, that's not the case uh, because the Liberal Party was essentially founded to be the... Uh, the, the opposition to the Labor movement to represent the interests of capital, whereas the Labor Party uh, represented the interests of organised labour. And when there is no uh, political interest, uh, when there is no more organised labour, or at least when it's a hugely diminished force, then what use is there for a, uh, for a party, to a, a political party to oppose them? So both major parties, and I would argue all, all the major parties around the Western world are in uh, systematic decline because the economy is shifting, society is shifting. There's also the, the decline in organised religion, the feminisation of the workforce and, the, and, and of our societies, uh, other major factors. Now, what happens to those political parties uh, when they go into that the kind of decline that I describe? Well, no, no major institution uh, lightly gives up. They always look for ways to survive. And the way that I think major political parties have tried to survive is essentially by professionalising. So they have moved from a model of mass participation uh, to one that is capital intensive. So don't look for a lot of members, but look for a lot of, or a lot of donors or big donors. Um, and, and in fact, that, that, has, that is consistent with trends in uh, you know, in, in modern society and modern communications, that, that political campaigning has become much less labour intensive and much more capital intensive. So that, that suited that shift anyway. Uh, so, so political parties have become smaller, they've become much more uh, professional and better organised. Uh, and yet at the same time, they have lost touch with the social and economic base, which they used to be rooted to. And so they've become essentially a, uh, uh, you know, entities that are divorced from the roots which from which they sprang. So in Australia right now, I think roughly half of all uh, Liberal and Labor Party MPs were either former staffers or former union officials. And that number is still increasing. Uh, and what happens in those circumstances to the major political parties? Well, 
you know, they, they try and engineer the system to in order to maintain their, their centrality, and that is still the case uh, in Australia. But that model has its limits, and as we saw in 2022, what happens is gradually is that uh, minor parties and independents start to take over, or, or at least have a, have a much greater influence. And here we come to the point that I began with, which is how the crisis in political parties is being mistaken for a crisis of democracy. So I think as political parties lose their size and lose their heft and influence, they start to lose control over their fringes. That's one element. Uh, and so the, the, the radical elements that used to be contained or at least suppressed within those parties, they start to break free. And to me, that's the story of Brexit. That's why Brexit happened is because essentially the Conservative Party no longer had control of its own, uh, uh, of its own anti-European element. There was a you know, there was, there was a revolt within the Conservative Party. There was also UKIP, which was a breakaway movement. Uh, and in the United States, I think that phenomenon uh, explains Trump better than the idea that there's some kind of crisis or democracy, certain, uh, crisis of democracy. Certainly, I think the, 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 the decline of the parties explains Trump better than this idea that suddenly America has become more racist or more, more xenophobic. I mean, if that's true, why did they elect Obama and then re-elect him four years later? It's not clear to me that America is becoming significantly more racist or xenophobic than it ever was. Uh, whereas the, 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 the party decline thesis, I think, explains Trump better because Trump is essentially a third party candidate. But it's impossible to win in America that way. So he infiltrated the Republican Party and took it over. You know, the virus taking over the host. I think the decline of party thesis also explains the changes in Europe, European politics a lot better, the rise of right-wing populism. Again, it's, it's not so much that there's more uh, right-wing popular sentiment in Europe, because actually the surveys suggest that that's not increasing. But it's because the, the major political parties can no longer control that minority of right-wing populist opinions that was always there. So that, that, that little minority of opinion, that small subset of people that always believed those extremist ideas, they've now been set free by party decline. And they're now free to move towards uh, new political forces, such as have arisen in many countries in, uh, in Europe, most notably in Germany with... Uh, uh, a populist right-wing party, uh, you know, doing doing very well over there. So that, in a nutshell, is my thesis, that, that party decline uh, is the real phenomenon here uh, and it's mistaken for democratic decline. By uh, identifying a few points of agreement uh, or a, certainly I completely agree with you that... Uh, the rise of Donald Trump does not reflect a rise of xenophobia, rather the opposite. Uh, you know, there's simply no doubt, I think, that the, the societies that we inhabit are, have become hugely less racist, hugely less sexist, hugely less xenophobic than they were when I was a kid, and they are continuing to do so. Um, so that isn't my concern. Um, the language that you've used is a language which sort of presupposes um, that the, there are things that are kind of presupposed there. So let's, I was quite intrigued that you, you speak as if 
there are there are th that what's happened is a breaking out of radicalism. Now, um, the thing is that there wasn't any strong nascent interest in the United Kingdom in Brexit among the population. That was that was cooked up. So what's happening? So so so, the, so what I find unnerving, deeply unnerving, um, uh, is it would come across to lots of people who think a lot about politics as very effete, because I would say things like the making of meaning is kind of atrophying, is disappearing, and of course we'll get we may we will I expect get onto that, particularly with Donald Trump. But there are there are certain kind of very basic fundamental democratic norms and and fundamental um, aspects of a democracy that a democ democracy can't do without. Um, most obviously, and this is something that has come to the attention of people, it can't really do without a sh some sort of shared notion of the truth. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't disagree about the truth. But if we start, if if big lies get going, uh, then I think we really have very big problems. Now we will, uh, I think, talk about the big lie in the United States in in a little while. But um, let me give you the example of Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales. Uh, for people listening to this uh, who aren't familiar with it. Um, the Premier of New South Wales, uh, was, her phone was tapped by, a, by an integrity agency. Why was it tapped? Because they were, well, they didn't know they were tapping her phone. They were tapping the phone of um, a guy, I think his name was Daryl Maguire, and he was doing various dodge. He had been a member of parliament for Wagga, uh, a town in New South Wales or a city in, in rural New South Wales. And he'd been a member of parliament and he was now uh, lobbying parliament to get it to agree to various things that would uh, make him some decent money if the government agreed to fund certain things. Uh, it turned out the wiretaps, the phone taps, showed that Gladys Berejiklian, the, pre the premier, had been in a secret, uh, intimate relationship with him for many years, uh, had discussed marriage with him. She changed her uh, portfolio responsibilities uh, to, into the portfolio responsibilities that would have an impact on these decisions. Uh, and this was all exposed. And in the end, it took a while, uh, as these things sadly do, but she resigned. And the, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison at the time, said that this was trial by media and that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, the body that had uh, managed to catch her doing this was a, a kangaroo court and that it was overtaken with prurient interest. Now, that to me is a pretty shocking state of affairs. I, I remember on Twitter people starting to talk about Scott Morrison as, as gaslighting, and I thought that was an excellent description of what was happening. Um, so that's in a much more... That, that's a big lie. That's a, or, if you like, a kind of big 
diversionary, a, a big tendentious diversionary, f- phenomenally dishonest framing of the issues that arise in that case. And and that seemed to be the stuff of this government, of, of the previous liberal government or the previous coalition government. Um, so, so I'm not thinking quite so much about... But it doesn't seem to me to add up to explain this problem as a problem of latent policy desires or even xenophobia or something like values. It's a... It's some kind of what's being tested, I think, is the capacity of the electoral system to respond to basic attacks on fundamental democratic norms, uh, and that the most fundamental of which is the this idea of the truth and the idea that public servants, oh, sorry, public servants and politicians behave with a certain basic probity towards the public interest. Um, so that would be the first point that I'd make. The, the uh, to, to get a little more theoretical about the way in which I look at politics, what I think has gone wrong, uh, I would recommend to anyone listening to this a book by Jonathan Rauch called The Constitution of Truth. I think that's what it's called. Uh, knowledge, quite right, sorry. Uh, I've been in correspondence with him. Uh, sorry, Jonathan, for um, for mucking up the title, the Constitution of Knowledge, and in it, he he uh, points out something which has troubled me for a long time, and this is the this idea, this naive idea of the free market in ideas. The idea is that if we just let anyone say any old thing. Uh, that the truth will out, that will end, that that this free market in ideas will produce better ideas. Better ideas will drive out worse ideas. Now, this is not me pursuing some agenda to suppress free speech. I happen not to think that most of the suppression of free speech that's going on at the moment is a good thing at all. But what it is, what is important here, is that. You can have speech that is entire that, that that our political system, our political our sense of making political meaning, has been completely swamped in manipulative speech. In that in if you're a political operative, what do you do? You frame you frame everything you say so that it just seems crazy to um, think anything else. My favourite example here is the question on Fox News where someone says, do you think that diversity training in the military will help us in our next military engagement? That kind of thing. Um, without, while being a sort of somewhat sympathetic to their hostility to all the diversity training. Um, so that is what's happened to our politics. And so through that... Um, We've kind of uh, we're losing touch with the the sort of basic building blocks of meaning. Now, I want to go on and say some more things, but I've spoken for quite a long time. I should give you a. I don't know whether you want to respond to some of that, but I'll then uh, I'll then uh, talk, talk more about the structure structures within politics. Well, yes. So 
it's odd to I think when we began, we framed this as as me being the slightly more optimistic uh, of the two of us, but that 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 framing doesn't quite work because my optimism, such as it is, is really based on uh, a slightly resigned sense that it was ever thus. So the kind of the the examples that you've drawn on about Gladys Berejiklian, and then uh, uh, you referenced the Jonathan Rorsch book, uh, I, I'm not going to argue with you that the state of things are uh, as we would wish them to be. I would only argue that, uh, as uh, as Owen Harry's uh, once said, we should beware the parochialism of the present, which is to say that it, uh, another way of saying that is that we should beware availability bias. So there are plenty of examples to to pluck to pluck from uh, the, the the public debate at the moment of 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 just how screwed up our democracy is and America's democracy and everybody else's. But I, I would only caution that maybe it's always been that way. And I mean, New South Wales politics is famously, uh, you know, famously, uh, yeah, uh, you know, rough and tumble uh, at the very least. So uh, I, I'm no historian of it, but uh, I know I know enough to say that with some confidence. Um, and um, and nor is uh, nor is lying a new phenomenon. Um, uh, you know, Harry, Harry Harry Frankfurt wrote Harry Frankfurt wrote that famous uh, essay uh, on bullshit about um, uh, about the insidiousness of that phenomenon. I guess so. So all I'm getting at here is that what we should look for is the bits that are new. And what's new, actually, that, that threads together the kind of concerns you have is the internet. That is relatively new. And so I do agree that, uh, that the internet is making things harder and worse in particular ways. And you sent me an article by Ann Applebaum uh, earlier today, which I looked at, and uh, one central contention in that piece resonated with me, which is that um, the fight against... Uh, uh, against so-called fake news is not so much a fight for truth, although, of course, truth is important. It's more a fight for trust. And this is a point also that, uh, to make a recommendation of my own, Martin Gurry, I don't know if you've come across his work, Nick, G-U-R-R-I, uh, if you Google him, you'll find his blog. Uh, he, he's been very strong on this point, that what, what has broken down is not so much truth but the internet has broken down trust. When, when information is scarce, institutions which have a lot of information tend to be uh, high in authority. And the media is, of course, one of those. Government is another. The scientific establishment has, a mon has almost a monop near monopoly on, uh, on information, or at least used to. And when that's the case, those institutions tend to carry great authority. But we no longer live in an age of information scarcity. We live in an age of information superabundance. And in those circumstances, all institutions that, 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 that have lost this information monopoly tend to decline in authority. And that is, I think, the new, uh, the new bit that we're, that we're living through uh, that makes these, uh, these perennial debates about, uh, about truth and, and, and fake news uh, to, uh, gives them special urgency. We're both, uh, we're both as 
we've both sort of been through our arguments enough that you've now triggered a, a response from me that I recognise from other times I've responded to this. Um, I, in other words, when people tell me it's it's the internet, and I certainly ex- I fully accept that the internet has hugely made you know complicates uh, it, it's it's a substantial problem. There's no doubt about that, and it's a new problem. But I see it as an as a sort of rapid intensification of trends that were underway before then. And my my factoid of choice is this that. In 1968, the average length of a presidential soundbite on the new on US network news was 49 seconds. Sorry, 48 seconds. And in 1988, now the internet had actually come into existence, but most citizens would never have known of that. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, social media had not in 1988. And the length of a presidential soundbite on network news was nine seconds. Now, in many ways, I think democracy is over at that point. Um, now, that's a rather a dramatic statement, but there is a, there are a huge number of people who, uh, well, well, let me. What I mean by that is not that you can't go and get more information. It is that you are in this world of affect that you're in this world of entertainment, that it is impossible to to have anything to say in politics unless you arouse people, uh, that you do it within the first two seconds of your nine-second grab. Uh, these are tremendously damaging things, and, of course, they won't have their effect in one year or two years or three years or four years, uh, they have their effect over a generation or more. So, so these are uh, these are very powerful solvents. And to 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 then uh, so, so now I want to uh, unless you want to jump in there, I'll I'll just yeah please do yeah. Well, I only to say that it's only to say that it's that's a useful yeah, corrective, and in fact, do. I could yeah. you could strengthen the case even further by referring to radio. So when when yeah. when when people now say that we're, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. in an era of constant yeah. news, yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. that's not that that's new right. either. I mean, that's radio's right, been around for a century. Somehow, new uh, and somehow radio wasn't that revved up to sort of twenty four seven news. It was talkback, so that was it was always on, but it wasn't. These these journalists who tell you that uh, you know every four hours they've got to come up with something new you know it's just just just, just terrifying. Yeah, yeah, but but look, generally, generally, Nick, I I I think that's a useful corrective, and I I agree with you. But uh, and 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 I yeah, would yeah, I think yeah. about the internet also as an accelerant. Uh, and an accelerant of the of the kinds of trends that are that I described yeah. in my first uh, my first answer, which uh, uh, around the ho- the hollowing out of of Western politics, yes. so that Western politics becomes essentially an elite activity. And exactly. The public exactly. Is, is and a very pissed a off spectator. They're pissed off in two ways. They're pissed off because all of the all of the operatives are trying to get them pissed off at the other side and they're pissed off at the massive inauthenticity, what I call the uninhabitability of political culture, of the fact that 
you know, journalists are talking to themselves all the time on insiders, uh, that politicians are, are sort of um, have a, a sort of pabulum in which they communicate, which is sort of uninformative, evasive, uh, just, just, just a, so it's, it's very, very, I mean, in this sort of environment, um, people are v very hungry for authenticity. And unfortunately, authenticity mass produced for the television involves Pauline Hanson dressing up in a burqa and going into the parliament and all this kind of stuff. Sorry, you wanted to say something. I would just I would tweak that slightly. I, I think the the people who are yeah. politically active are increasingly pissed off, uh, yeah. and those are those I would label the the political hobbyists essentially people who watch politics as if it's sport or as if it's drama. Uh, but but the vast majority of yeah. people, I well, think I think well, that's so why I said. Off, but, but then I think there's a distinction between being pissed off about yeah. things and being pissed off with politics and they're pissed off with politics i think they say things like they're all in it for themselves and all that kind of stuff and, and that's yes, right that, and that, that wasn't is, the that case deep 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 seated cynicism yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Which, well i'd say it, it, press, it, it, it leads to disengagement um and um yeah so good well we we seem to have a fairly uh, a reasonable sort of meeting of minds there let me um let me go on to make us uh, one of the things that I have made a habit of doing, which I'm quite, which I think works very well, does for me, is I. Uh, this isn't a piece of economics taken to politics, but it is the style of thinking that economics is done in, which is very simple ideas are brought to a very complex story, and it seems to me. So here are some very simple ideas. That, or a very simple idea, that all democracies are built on three different types of institution. The institutions of direct democracy, which in, the, in ancient Athens was the assembly, and in our democracies is the vote, and plebiscites when they happen. Uh, then there are two forms of representative democracy, and we... Uh, if you ask a person who's been at high school or at uni and they've heard about representative democracy, they think that means electoral democracy. And electoral democracy is one way to represent the people. So we have a, uh, a government that has to represent 25 million Australians or 320 odd million Americans or whatever it is now. Uh, and clearly you can't have an assembly of that many people. In fact, now because of the internet, you can. We'll leave that. I'll leave that out of contention unless you want to bring it in at some stage. So, we're in the business of trying to represent the people in some representative structure, and it just seems absolute common sense to people that elections are that mechanism. It's it's kind of beyond their it's not beyond their comprehension. It's beyond their kin, or it's not what they think of. What they think? Well, how else could you do it? And as and that this won't be keeping you in suspense, Sam, because you'll know what I'm talking about, which is that there is one other way to represent the people, which I call so I call um, uh, the first one is which I've just mentioned is representing the people via competitive election, 
uh, and the other is via sampling. And what the hell is representation by sampling? Well, it's just going and grabbing yourself a group of people from the from the population you want to represent and sticking them on a body and saying, what do you think? Well, I'm describing a jury in a court case. That's how we do it. We sample from the community at random. And this was a very, this was a, this has been a widespread practice in, uh, of course, ancient Athens, where they used this form of sampling in their political structures far more than elections. If you're interested, Pericles was elected as a general, but the group of people running the city, the courts were rotated from random selection from the people. Why am I so exercised about this? Because I think one of the fundamental things that has happened is that there has been a failure to defend the centre, a failure to hold the centre. You know, the um, W.B. Yeats' famous poem, um, The Centre Cannot Hold. Uh, when drama, when the drama amps up, the centre cannot hold and we end up with monsters. Now, here's a pretty interesting fact, I think, which is that in the United States, where I don't know whether a majority, but certainly a large number of states are heavily gerrymandered, most almost all in the Republican, by Republicans, for Republicans, uh, that, that if you ask... American citizens, do they think that gerrymandering is a good idea? Well, they won't say yes. Uh, over 90% say no, and over 90% say it's a very bad idea. And I think even, you know, even if you ask them leading questions like, you know, it's sometimes justified or something, the answer is pretty much no, it's not justified. That's not democratic. Now, the interesting thing is, that this is pretty bipartisan among the among the population, not nearly so bipartisan among the politicians. So, ninety-two percent of Democrats regard uh, gerrymandering as a really, really bad idea, and about eighty-eight percent of Republicans think the same thing, and yet they keep voting for Repu Clearly, it's not important enough to them for Republicans to vote against Republicans when they know that those Republicans plan to gerrymander the state or, or maintain the gerrymander. So in, in um, the, the, what's breaking out in the United States in various different contexts, but Michigan is one of the best ones, is that they are developing mechanisms where jury-like bodies are doing things like redistricting. Uh, jury-like body, bodies are made responsible for holding the centre. And I think that that is... Uh, and, and just to... Well, no, I'll leave it there and I might make my additional comment in a minute. But um, uh, that, that, to me, I think, is both a diagnosis but a diagnosis that actually leads somewhere in terms of what we might be able to do. Well, I, I'm really attracted to the citizen jury idea, as I've told you before, um, and you're largely responsible for introducing me to the idea. Um, I think in Australia, to draw an Australian parallel to what you're saying, I think the clearest 
example of where uh, there is a a split between pol- the political elite and the public uh, that I referred to earlier is a uh, you know is a result of this um, hollowing out of politics. The clearest example of that is on the issue of the republic. Yeah. And so we had a referendum in 1999 uh, where uh, where the uh, the Republicans did not win, and we didn't we didn't divorce ourselves from uh, from the British monarchy. The, the the British monarch remains Australia's head of state. Uh, I would argue now that even though the number yeah. of Australians favouring a republic is higher, I would think. I would think that today the chances of a, of a refer, of such a referendum succeeding right. is actually even lower than it was in 1999, and that is a, and that is essentially because there is a clear divergence yeah. here yeah. between the political elite and the public. So the political elite would argue, and I think I think with some justice would argue that a popularly elected president yeah well I agree with that would I agree with that. Uh, would yeah. do some violence to our constitutional it's arrangement it's completely obvious to me yeah, I think uh, I think that's a reasonable point of view and yet I and and, and yet I think mm. it's I think it's equally fair for the public to say uh, and, and equally reasonable for the public to say we will stand for nothing less than a popularly elected president who do you yes do but who do you politicians think to will end up president. I mean the the logic I see of this, the, the, I, I think of that as as a kind of gigantic piece of magical thinking. And the logic is we don't want those awful politicians. We don't want a politician being our president. We'll take that into our own hands. Thanks very much. We'll vote for them. Well, what do you get when you vote for someone? You get a politician, uh, which is uh, so. so uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, but I, I get that. I get that. I acknowledge it. But I, but I think, I think, I think it's a, it's it, to me a clear and obvious uh, uh, outcome of the hollowing out of yeah, yeah, politics. Yeah. Well, well, when the public is no longer connected to politics anyway, in any way, when they observe it from yeah, 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 yeah. But, but they could they could take that cynicism and people trying to influence them could take that cynicism and say, yes, you're absolutely right to detect some stuff that you you are unhappy with and should be unhappy with about your political system. The simple hack you're thinking about, which is to elect the president, won't do it. It'll do some harm and will run into a lot of flack from people who think about this a lot, and it actually won't serve your needs. But a body of randomly selected citizens easily could start thinking like that. I. I absolutely agree, and that's the point I was heading towards. That I think that the, I think the, the, the that's all right. I think I think the compromise, yeah, the 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 compromise between those positions is that yes, you you assemble a jury of Australians. And what I like about this idea, what I really like about this idea is that, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are all sorts of. Um, uh, yeah, we you just know, have in, to be careful. Zoom, we have to be careful of electronic, of electronic communication this, but and it's it seems people's to capacity to manipulate it and rev it up. But of course, you would want to use it to ex- extend something if it was working. 
Well, well, but 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 I think actually a lovely old-fashioned idea here is that we use old Parliament House for this purpose, right? That it becomes effectively, it becomes effectively a third chamber of Australian federal of, of Australian federal democracy, and that every five years you assemble a group of let's say 150 Australians who gather for two weeks and sit in the in the House of Representatives chamber and hear arguments, and at the end of at the end of that two weeks. They elect a new president for a five-year term. That that strikes me as a wonderful compromise and a great little. Well, okay, I, yeah, but what I was thinking of is somewhat different, which is to, through some process like that, have a council, uh, and and basically, I'm quite happy with a robo president for almost all of the time because they're just signing stuff and 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 opening swimming pools called the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. Um, but, um, but, but there are times when there are crises and you do want some sense of apolitical adjudication of various tense things. So, uh, it'd be interesting. Let's talk more about that, but a, but a quick sketch of that would be that you have a uh, 150 people, they select not by election, but that's another story, but they select, uh, uh, without a sort of any competition between them, they select who among those people are most impressed by the people who have been there for that two weeks into some kind of executive, and that executive then has a kind of watching brief. Uh, so something like that could play the role of a, a pre, of a president. I'm very attracted to what they do in Switzerland which is what they did a lot in Athens among, for instance, uh, generals and so on, which is that they don't make it about the person who's got to the top. They rotate people from a council. They did this in Venice for 500 years with great success as well. Um, so, th so there are lots of things to think about. And if we, if we decompress all the, all the sort of combating egotism that we've set up, this idea that competition is always our friend. And it's often our friend. It's certainly often our friend in, in, in economics. But in meaning making, you need some competition where different people argue their case and you need to hold the centre. Uh, the, 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 the holding of the centre is a far more important thing than we appreciate, I think. Uh, so... Um, so that's great that we uh, that's great that you've suggested that. Um, uh, so let's um, let's now um, uh, let's now ask ourselves what we think about the possibilities. Well, I'll just uh, cut to the chase and say, Sam, what did you think of the election? Is it good, bad? What's good about it? What's bad about it? What can we make of it? How do we? Uh, what advice do we have? for all those people who are not listening to us, uh, but we wish were uh, to do exactly what we think we should do with the, what opportunities the uh, and, and difficulties and dangers the election in Australia has uh, thrown up. And for listeners overseas, perhaps, Sam, you could give us just a pretty quick uh, <coughs> description of what happened in the last election because there were some quite big tectonic shifts. Yeah, well, what we saw is the uh, essentially the 
I would argue, the end of the two-party uh, system in Australia, the duopoly, uh, because we now have a situation where... Uh, what I thought call- it was something like 18 people, but it might be... Anyway, it's a very hefty... So we have um, about 150 members of the House of Representatives. There you go. Thank you. Uh, and I think we have about 18 independents, a good, solid crossbench, and we have a very small, absolute majority for the governing party. I think that's quite, well, that's obviously important. I think it's important for some reasons that haven't been fully appreciated. That's the situation we've got, and we've had this big swing towards independence. We've also had a bit of a swing towards the outlying green or the outlying left of centre party, which is the Greens, and they picked up two lower house seats, three lower house seats. They got close to picking up three. Uh, but the main bunch of independents is, uh, are a whole bunch of local members, just the way Edmund Burke was thinking about them back in the day, uh, who are quite consciously representative of their electorates. They will obviously care a lot about what their electorates think, but I, I like to think that many of them will think, as Edmund Burke thought, that he owes them his judgment at least as much as he owes them his slavish following of all of the things that they ask for. Uh, anyway, so tell us what you... So, so the end of the, the end of the party system... Well, for me, for me the, 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 the critical thing about the election, I mean, the, the, to, to foreign listeners, the, the number of independents in, in a fairly large lower house chamber uh, may not sound that impressive, but it is a big, uh, a big shift yeah. to, to that lower house I think, I think house it's enough to, it's form, enough to say that we would expect, you and I, Sam, correct and me if you would disagree, than- would expect most governments with 18 independent members on the crossbench we would expect most governments to be minority governments going in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, and and more to the point, the, the, we, we now have essentially an even split in the primary vote in Australia. And that, that basically means in a preferential voting system where voters can put uh, numbers next to uh, their candidates, who they want first, second, third, fourth, etc., the number of people now putting a minor party or an independent first is roughly the same as the number of picking one of the same party, uh, one of the two big parties. Oh, when so you it's say, a three-way yeah, split, well, one who, yeah, not an independent, eventually, but, but someone who's not from the two major parties. One third, one third. So one third coalition, one third Labor, one third other. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, look, I think there, there are two big positives out of this. One is that it helps us to, uh, it helps Australia to negotiate the, the decline of the major parties. So our voting system uh, and our parliament is flexible enough that we can actually, you know, record and reflect the changing preferences of Australians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we should be confident that uh, the political system can cope with it. A lot of political commentators be a lot of political commentators bemoan this shift as a you know a decline into instability, but a lot of uh, very yeah. mature and highly functioning Western yeah, democracies exactly right. work perfectly well this way. One of them is our neighbour New Zealand. Uh, the the other positive the other positive spin off here is that 
hopefully it will improve the functioning of the lower house of parliament. Maybe not this time around, because as you mentioned, uh, the new government does have a small working majority. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. when uh, when it's yeah. a minority government yeah. Yeah. and where uh, those independents have more of a say, yeah. I would hope that what we will see is a is a better. Yeah. No, that's a that's a very good point that I hadn't thought of. My own little uh, suggestion is that twenty or thirty people be chosen from at random from the Australian population placed in the House of Representatives and given a procedural but not a substantive a substantive vote. I think that would be very interesting for question time. And of course the attempt to make question time work and the question time is a is a session where any backbencher, any member of parliament can ask a minister a question. Um, the, there was an attempt to make it work a bit better when the Gillard minority government uh, was in power from 2000 and whenever it was, 10 onwards. And um, uh, it was a, basically, no, you know, you can't make rules for that stuff. You actually have to have the ability to uh, to to blast out, uh, you know, to require ministers to answer questions and stuff like that. Hmm. I'll just point to one possible negative consequence or, uh, of this election or what it potentially presages. Uh, and that is that um, I, I wrote an article after the election which said that if, uh, if, if this is Australia's yeah, version excellent. of the Trump moment or the Brexit moment, then we've gotten off fairly lightly. Uh, if, if this is our version yeah. of that electoral shock to the status quo, then we're doing just fine. But I, I, I suspect it's probably not. And what we've never had in Australia, uh, and, and what I think I'm still waiting for, is a political independent who has both the charisma and the resources to really push right. at this open door now that, that is you know, the decline of the major parties. Yeah. Uh, so we've certainly, we've certainly had someone with the resources in the form of Clive no. Palmer. Uh, but he has yeah. no he has no discernible political talent, and so he has failed. Uh, arguably, mm. we have we have had it in a mild sense in the in the in the form of Malcolm well, Turnbull, well, Kevin who Wright. was kind Kevin of an Wright independent well. in the sense that yeah. he wasn't yeah. he wasn't of he was of and Kevin Rudd and, and Kevin Rudd. We're sounding both this is in the major parties, but perhaps not point. of the major parties. Um, and yeah. Uh, so, uh, but but I'm I'm still waiting for that moment, and and that's that's the kind of uh, phenomenon that I described in that little book. That when Australia really has its 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 true uh, a break with with a major party with an elite consensus, uh, that yeah. that can yeah. you know that can go very badly for uh, for a country uh, if if the person. You know, if the person uh, who is at the centre of that break yeah. is, you know, of the wrong personality type or just has okay. a really dangerous view. Thanks uh, for that, Sam. I agree with that in a way. Uh, I mean, it's certainly what I mean is it's a great corrective for you to say that. I think it's exactly right. I want to say I'm pretty proud of my country at the moment and I'm proud of two little tweaks, two little features, little technical features of the voting system. One is compulsory voting, which I think of as a negative poll tax. Uh, we fine people about 70 bucks if they don't turn up to vote. They're 
perfectly capable where they're entitled not to vote by simply uh, taking a ballot paper and tearing it up, uh, but they are required to go to the ballot. And uh, I think that's a fantastic system because it stops, it, it takes away that the gravitational force with which um, uh, politicians have to rev up their base and bases will look after themselves. <laughs> we need to rev up the centre. Uh, and the other thing we have is preferential voting, which is so much fairer, uh, so much more efficient uh, than first-past-the-post voting. So in 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 uh, the United Kingdom, there are really three parties. And at the moment, the Liberals and Labor are much more aligned than the Conservative Party. In other words, they're sort of a natural coalition. But if they don't organise their votes as a coalition, they steal votes from one another. And that's what happened in Brexit. A majority of people at the last election uh, voted for parties that were would not have proceeded with the Brexit that they have. Uh, so a, a party that picked up something like 40% of the, pop, uh, of the of the vote has produced this very hard, very damaging Brexit, worth about £200 billion a year to the British economy. Um, so, so I think it's... And it's just terrific to watch. Uh, the, the other thing I'd say is that uh, I think you agree with me, Sam, that with, with Schumpeter's critique of democracy as a sort of... as, as rule of the people... And it is, in fact, the way it is set up, and as it couldn't possibly be otherwise, is not the rule of the people, but a contest by factions of the elite for the consent of the governed. And what we've seen with the independents is that the middle class, the elite, is finally owning up to its responsibilities because the corollary of that view of democracy is that it will not work if the elite does not have some kind of bipartisan commitment across the aisle to basic democratic standards. Uh, now, that has existed for many years, but at the same time, it's existed alongside gerrymandering and malapportionment in Australia and in the United States. So that people muck around, but the, the class itself understands that that is... A kind of that 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 you you don't want to push that too far, and that's what's happened in Australia. That the upper middle classes stood up and said, "We want to lead," and thank God for that, um, uh, because the alternative is uh, the leadership of places like Fox News um, uh, and Big Lies and things like that. Let's uh, spend what time we have. Um, uh, uh, Sam, you're running out of batteries, which is imposing some healthy disciplines on us, I suspect. Um, uh, so let's, let's, Sam, give us your advice. Feel free to give advice to the Labor Party, to the coalition and to the independents um, in, the, in, the, in the coming parliament. Well, I think my... My broad advice is often in life, the thing that uh, you ought to be doing is the thing that's hardest to do. Uh, and one of the hardest things for politicians to do is to give up power. 
And so I would lean into any initiative or any possibility that you have that means devolving power back to the public. And of course, you know, citizen juries are one way of doing that. Uh, and and so I, I think actually at the centre of uh, yeah. of politics is yeah. the, is the yeah, broad distrust true. of the public. Yeah. Uh, the political, the major political parties, the major political parties are quite comfortable with the situation in which the public basically doesn't yeah. get involved in politics at all, except at election time. Uh, but so so true, uh, a true bravery here would uh, would be to restore authority. Certainly, my impression uh, is that the independent the candidates, public. the surge of independent ca candidates, have in fact managed that they brought about their own success by actively working with their communities. It wasn't just a sort of, here, I'm a third party, vote for me. There was a huge amount of community building uh, through a process called kitchen table conversations and all kinds of stuff. It's really very interesting stuff. And it's really back to basics for electoral politics, the sort of, this is where our democracies, our electoral democracies came from. So... That's a fantastic development, I think. Um, I want to say to, I hope that the Labor government will govern as if it will be needing the support of the independents in the next term. Uh, it's a, somewhat inexplicable to me that one of their first acts has been to take staff resources off the independents. Uh, I, I haven't even met anyone who... <laughs> Who even understands that? Uh, so I hope that the uh, that the government governs in that way, uh, governs in that inclusive way. I certainly won't be getting that. Um, and um, uh, I also want to say to the independents that um, it's very tempting. It will be tempting for them to think that they're on this wave. The wave will keep going. But that's what we heard from the Australian Democrats and other centrist organisations. It's what the Greens fantasise about. That, that, that the, the, the structural forces in the system are still very strongly in favour of the, the, the major parties dominating. So the question for you, O'Teal ones, <laughs> the question for you is how do you continue to institutionalise the spirit of independence. Uh, Sam has given you a fantastic idea as far as the Republic is concerned. Uh, I think these ideas of involving the public, not directly via voting, but indirectly via sampling, via community engagement, uh, I think those things are tremendously valuable and people might come from all around the world as they did at the turn of the 20th century to say what are these Australians doing because they seem to have um, they seem to be really slaying this dragon or seem to be taking it on uh, so that's uh, that's what I'm hoping for okay so Sam your um, uh, your your uh, I think your yeah. battery's going. Yeah. Okay. You leave your. Can Thanks, you leave Nick. your browser on? Can you leave your browser on? Uh, you're you're now. Yeah. No. No. Leave the browser on. Uh, leave the browser uploading. Don't. Uh, so I'll turn that off.